It's inspired by God to write these things down as he gave the theme that of the book of Romans, and that is, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation for all who believe. And in that theme, he would then declare to us that all of us are guilty, that all of us have sinned. And he wraps it up in chapter 3 by saying we all stand guilty, uh, the whole world before God, that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But we're not left in that hopeless state. That then he would begin in verse 21 of chapter 3, give us this doctrine called the doctrine of justification. And that word, of course, means being declared justified, a legal term. Uh, for uh, you are declared righteous, our very salvation is our faith in Jesus Christ. Now, we have learned very clearly it does not come by the deeds of the law. It doesn't come by our own righteous acts, but by faith in Jesus Christ who went to the cross of Calvary, died for our offenses, and was buried and rose again. And you see, there are people that, that we know and love and talk with that they think that they're going to get to heaven by their own merits. There are even those who belong to churches that believe that. Well, I belong to the church. I've gone to Bible study. I've been a good person. I've given to the church. There are those that we talk to that they think they merit heaven. I'm a good person, and my good outweighs my bad, so I'll make it to heaven. I can stand before God in my own righteousness. And we know that the Bible teaches differently. Matter of fact, there was a survey taken, Pew Research, a couple years ago, and those who they surveyed, 72% define heaven as a place where people who have led a good life are eternally rewarded. There was another survey that was taken just two years ago by Lifeway, and they surveyed uh, evangelical believers or those with evangelical beliefs. And those that they surveyed, nearly two-thirds, 65% of those with evangelical beliefs say that everyone's going to make it to heaven. I find that amazing. Now, when they surveyed the regular population, the population in general, the American population, only 60% said that everyone will make it to heaven, you know. And so there seems to be some confusion about salvation or this doctrine of justification that we went over very carefully. And so Paul has already presented to us and it, for our consideration, for us to embrace truth, that it's not in what we do that brings eternal life. It's in what he did. It was Jesus that cried out from the cross, it is finished. And he was declaring that I have done the work. I have paid the price. I have died for the sins of the world. You see, that's what makes Christianity unique. That every other belief, every other religion says this is what you have to do to gain eternal life. It is only true biblical Christianity that says it has been done through Jesus Christ and now we come in faith. He did the work. So Paul developing this truth that justification is by faith alone and now we celebrate our salvation. And chapter 5 ending this, this section on uh, justification. Again, we are freed from the penalty of sin because of Jesus. But as we sit here on this Sunday before Christmas Eve, we think what about the power of sin? What about the struggles that we have? 
And as we move into chapter 6, that will continue through chapter 8 of Romans, we come to a new section of this book that emphasizes it switches from justification, which is we are positionally righteous, to sanctification, God working in us practical righteousness, the outworking uh, that uh, of our lives, living for the Lord in chapter 8 is going to tell us how that's done by the power of the Holy Spirit. So sanctification literally means to be set apart because we are justified positionally, we are to be sanctified practically. Set apart to live for the Lord, to honor the Lord, to be used of the Lord, to know Him, to walk with Him. So we have seen in this incredible book of Romans that chapters 1 through 3 tells us that we are guilty of sin. And then in verse 21 of chapter 3 through chapter 5 that we finished last week, that we are forgiven of sin. And now we are justified because of our faith in Jesus Christ. And then chapters 6 through 8 will tell us that we are to be dead to sin. And I personally believe that this section of Romans over the next several weeks that we're going to be moving into and studying very carefully are some of the most powerful and helpful passages that we have in the New Testament and how we live for the Lord. Not only learning that we are justified, that means that we're free from the penalty of sin, but as we live our lives now, that we're going to learn that we're free from the power of sin in our lives. And it would be important that Paul, of course, would talk about, first of all, justification, because sanctification isn't going to take place until, first of all, you're born again by the Spirit of God that you've come to faith in Jesus Christ. And now sanctification being set apart where the Lord is working in our lives. And last week as we ended chapter 5, of course, we read that Paul writes, we're sin abounded, grace abounded, much more. And as I read that, that's amazing to me, that we have been justified freely by His grace through the redemption in Christ Jesus, we were told in chapter 3. Grace means the unmerited favor of God. We are saved by grace through faith, as Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2. And those who would read the end of chapter 5 with the apostle penned, that they might think, well, sin abounds, grace abounded much more. Uh, I personally, at one time in my life, would have thought, where sin abounds, that God's wrath and judgment abounds much more. But his grace abounds much more. And legalists and others that might read that, they might think, well, sin abounds much, you know, abounds, grace abounds much more. Then that means people are just going to go out and just live in sin. They're going to live a sinful lifestyle. And what we need to do is we need to emphasize the law. We need to emphasize do's and don'ts and deeds. There might be those who read that and think, well, if God loves sinners and forgives sinners, then why even worry about sin? If God gives grace to sinners, why not sin more so I can receive more grace? Some people might even think and take it as far as, well, if it's God's job to forgive, I guess I'll do my part and I'll go out and sin. So those who may perhaps think in that way, Paul's going to show us that living in God's grace that abounds much more means that we are dead to sin, that we live righteously. So Paul now addresses those who may, those who may protest and say, we need to emphasize the law. We need to emphasize doing deeds. We need to emphasize regulations and rules and not grace because then people are just going to go out and live in sin and take advantage of this grace that we have. 
So we want to look at this section very carefully of Romans, which I believe is critical that we have a good understanding of what is being declared to us the next three chapters, just as it was important in the first five chapters that we've looked at so far. So let's begin to do that in chapter 6, verse 1. We read, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who have died to sin live any longer in it? So Paul beginning to tell us that the doctrine of grace is not a license to sin. He says, should we continue in sin? And what he's talking about here is talking about habitual sin. He's not saying that as a Christian that you will never sin again. But shall we continue in habitual sin, living a constant life of sin, not being convicted when we go out and sin? Should we continue in that, that grace may abound? And as he writes this in verse 2, he says, certainly not. And in the Greek language, using that phrase, certainly not, is a very strong wording that he's using. It's like he's saying, absolutely no way, no Absolutely not. Certainly not is what he's saying there in verse 2. And the reason is, is we are dead to sin. And then Paul builds on this thought that we are dead to sin as we continue. But here's something for our consideration. That when something is dead or you're dead to it, it means that you don't interact with it. You don't entertain it. You don't fellowship with it. It is dead. And Paul, building on this thought that we're dead to sin, he's going to use the phraseology of know this or don't you know. And he's going to use it repeatedly in the chapter. And when he does, don't you know or know this, that what he's saying is this is really, really important. It's kind of like when you read the gospel narratives, when Jesus is given parables or teachings, that he says, take heed. And when Jesus says, take heed, it's like he's saying, this is really, really important. Listen up. Understand this. And that's what the, the apostle is doing as he will use that, that phrase, don't you know or know this repeatedly in a chapter as we begin to look at that, continuing in verse 3. Or do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. So the first no that Paul emphasizes is know this, that when you came to Jesus by faith, then know that you have an identification with Jesus Christ. It is symbolized in baptism. Don't you know? Don't you understand? Realize this, that when you baptize, what was it that you were declaring? What was happening? You were baptized unto death. When we baptize someone in water, they are identifying with Christ in that we take a believer and next month we're going to have a baptism. For those of you who'd like to be baptized, those of you who have just come to Christ, we're going to give you that opportunity at the end of January. But what we do in baptism is we take a believer who says, yes, in faith, I believe that Jesus has died for me on Calvary's cross, was buried and rose again from the grave. And I want him to be in control of my life. And now I am baptized because I want to make, listen, an outward expression of that inward 
commitment that I have made. And we take that person who has said that in their hearts, and what we do is we bury them. We immerse them. That is what the word baptism literally means. It means to immerse. We put them under the water, symbolizing that they have been buried with Christ. It's a picture of death. We are dead to the old self, the old nature. And then we pull them out of the water, which symbolizes that we've been resurrected with Christ in a newness of life. And you are saying, I begin a new life in Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. You know the verse, many of you. That Paul, he writes that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So that is what a person is declaring when they get baptized. It's, once again, an identification with Jesus in his death and resurrection. Now, baptism being that public declaration that I am a Christian, that declaring that I am a believer, I identify with Christ, it is a declaration that I am saved. There are those who will come along to you and to me, and they'll argue with us. I've had many of them come to me, argue, call, and, and all of this. You have to be baptized in order to be saved. Baptism is important. It's a commandment given by the Lord in a believer's life to be baptized, but it is not necessary for salvation. We have painstakingly been looking at what Paul has written, that no deeds of the law can save you. And when Paul was writing to the Galatian believers, he would say, I marvel that you turn away from the gospel that we've given to you that, to another, which is not the gospel. And they were saying, you have to be circumcised in order to be saved. And those who come along and say that you have to be baptized or worship on a certain day, there are those who say, why do you at Calvary Chapel worship on Sunday? It should be on the true Sabbath on Saturday. And because you worship on Sunday, you're not really saved. There is no deeds of the law that we can do in order to be saved. We are saved by faith alone, and we need to be established in that. And when Jesus cried, it is finished from the cross, listen, it is finished. It is finished. He did the work. And to say that we have to finish it is saying and denying the sufficiency of the cross of what he did and dying for us. And rising from the grave to provide forgiveness and salvation. So we need to be established in that. Paul says, know this. If you were baptized, you were identified with Jesus Christ in a new way of living. And I hope that we're really coming to the wonderful realization and understanding that salvation is not only that we're forgiven, which is so glorious, we have access, peace with God, as chapter 5 says, access to the Father, relationship with Him through Jesus Christ. We have the hope of glory. We're heaven-bound. But to know this, that now we're a new creature in Christ, and I don't have to live the way that I did before I came to Christ, and all the crud, and all the sin, and all the guilt, and the former lust, and ignorance, and foolishness, and in darkness. We have a new identification in Christ Jesus. And then continuing, secondly, we have liberation through Jesus Christ. Because you might be here this morning and you're thinking, well, I was baptized last summer. 
Uh, I was baptized years ago. I identify myself with him in baptism. I understand. I know that the declaration was the old is being buried and the new resurrected, but I still struggle. I struggle with the flesh. I'm weak in this area of my life. And Paul says, know this, understand this. You have liberation now through Jesus Christ, verse 6. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. So know this, that the old man has been crucified with Christ, that the body of sin might be done away with. Or if you have a King James, I like what it reads. It, it reads destroyed. It means in the Greek rendered inactive. It, it means useless. Understand this, Calvary Chapel. The old man, the old self, the old sinful tendencies was crucified with Christ. The old man has been rendered inactive, useless. The flesh doesn't have authority over me because it has been crucified with Christ. And we need to have a good understanding of this. Listen, Jesus did not die on the cross, was buried and rose again so that we can and would continue in the old life. We've been brought out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Not that we would live in sin and go back to the darkness. Continue in the old man, the old woman. And Paul says, know this, know this, understand this. Sometimes Christians will say, or those who say they're Christians, only the Lord knows, that they say they're believers in Christ. And they get into this whole thing that we used to call years ago, sloppy agape. Oh, God is love, and he is, and he forgives me, and I'm under grace, and that means I can just live any way that I want to, and I can go out and do whatever it is that I want to, and I'll just kind of do the old stuff, the old habits, and, and I don't need to change, and I can't change, and, and he loves me the way that I am. And there's even that kind of thinking that is in the church today, and that kind of mentality among Christians today, that being a Christian, I can live any way that I want to. And if we have that mindset, I'll do whatever I want, then first of all, no one can look at our lives and draw hope that God can change them. You see, we not only believe the gospel, we live the gospel, don't we? We not only witness with the words that we give to others, but with our lives, with our speech and our conduct, our behavior, with our faith, with our purity and love. And they see the reality of Jesus Christ in our lives and in our hearts, that there's something real, something different that's going on. They're not going to see perfection. No one sees perfection in us. And I don't think anybody expects to see perfection. But they see something of the Lord. They see the power of the gospel that has changed you, the power of God's spirit in an individual. And then it gives them hope, hey, that there's something real here. And God perhaps can do that for me. He can save me and he can change me to where I don't have to be a slave to sin and I don't have to be in bondage to sin. And that's what's going to be pressed as we get into the second half of this chapter next time that you and I, we have a decision to make. Are you going to be enslaved to sin or are you going to be a slave to the Lord? In other words, who is your master? Who's your master? Now, as I mentioned, I know that as long as I live in this life, I'll still have struggles. I'll have weaknesses. 
God's still working in me. He's changing us from glory to greater glory. The sin nature is still there. The flesh still screams at me. Now the old man speaks of the person I was spiritually before I trusted Jesus Christ. When I was under sin and bondaged to sin, powerless over sin. So the sin nature has not been annihilated, but it has been rendered useless, inactive. So I don't have to be a slave to sin. It kind of works like this. Sue and I, we take a walk. So we're taking a walk down the street, and there's this big yard that's got two big dogs in it. And those dogs come running up to the fence, growling, barking, snarling, all of this, running up and down the fence. And they're big. They're powerful. But there's a greater power, and that is the fence, to hold them back. <laughs> those dogs can bark all they want. They can run back and forth. They can snarl. But those dogs are inactive, rendered useless as long as that fence is there. Now, if I go over there and I jump the fence into the yard, they probably would eat me alive, no doubt. You see, the sin nature that we have has power. It barks at us. It has strength. But now as a believer in Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells in me. And that is a greater power to where I don't have to be in bondage and slave to sin, to where I'm serving sin. And Paul says, know this, as we continue in verse 7, for he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that, verse 9, Christ has been raised from the dead, dies no more, death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. So we have already seen that as we're dead to sin with Jesus, death no longer has dominion over us. Verse 7, we have been freed from sin. It literally means we have been declared righteous or justified since we have identified ourselves with the death of Christ knowing that he has been raised from the dead to die no longer death no longer has dominion over him and it doesn't have dominion over us we share in his resurrected life Paul would write in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 because Jesus Christ rose from the grave that we also have the promise of the resurrection. But Paul writing in Galatians chapter 2 would say that I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let's continue reading in verse 11 of chapter 6. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lust. So the apostle here, continuing as he puts, puts pen to parchment, inspired by the Spirit of God, emphasizing that we're dead to sin, reckon it to be so. Now, that word reckon is a term that is being used here. It's different than what we generally, how we use the word reckon. Um, we can use it, I, I reckon I'll mosey on out to the car and go get some lunch after service. That's not what it means here. Uh, this word reckon, uh, reckon you're dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus, it's an accounting term. It literally means to take inventory, to add it up, to come to a summation, come to a conclusion. This is what God has declared. This is what he has said in his word. You know it here in chapter 6. Add it up. Consider it. 
come to the conclusion that you are dead to sin and alive unto God. And don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies, verse 13, and do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Verse 14, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but you're under grace. Now, this is important. You've received truth. Know this. Reckon it to be so. Consider it. Important truth given to you. And as truth is given to us, as we look at the implication of what is being told to us, Paul now goes to application. This is how you can apply these truths that you know as you reckon it, as you know this, as you add it up. That the flesh, when it rears its ugly head, when sin is knocking at the door, you're tempted For example, to lie. Young people, to your parents, to your spouse, to your boss, or to whoever. When you're tempted to gossip at work, you're at the break, people are there, there's some real juicy news being spread about the boss or another coworker, and you want to hear it. And you want to get involved in the conversation. And you got some other juicy info to pass along that you've heard from other sources. And as I give that information, I know that everybody wants to hear it. And they will enjoy it. And we're all going to get a big hoot out of it. Or when the temptation comes, then I'm going to pull up something on the computer that's an abomination to the Lord that's going to corrupt your heart. You pull it up, the pornography, the images. Hey, I'm going to go with the guys after work and party. We've been working hard all week. It's just going to be for a little bit. Hey, I'm going to uh, go and, and, and do these things and watch these movies or participate in that, whatever it might be. Listen, when sin is knocking at the door, opportunity is there. Here's some real practical application to be made. And please don't go to sleep on me. What you do when the temptation is there, you stop at that moment and you say, Lord, I know, I understand now that I don't have to be given over to sin because the old man has been crucified with Christ and I'm no longer a slave to sin. I reckon it to be so. And I yield my members, my mouth, my eyes, my body as instruments of righteousness I'm not going to look at that thing on the computer. I'm not going to watch that movie. I'm not going to go into that place where I know there's partying and there's carnality that has taken place. I'm not going to get involved in that sin. That I am not going to say those corrupt words. And I yield myself to you because I want to honor you, Lord. And what I say and where I go and what I do, I yield to you, Lord. And Lord, help me. Help me to honor you in what I'm supposed to do. And I give myself to you. And Lord, I know this, that the Holy Spirit that dwells in me is more powerful than my flesh. Help me, Lord, to give my body over as an instrument of righteousness is what's being told to us in practical living for the Lord. You give it to the Lord right there, right then. And then sin won't have dominion over you.
But if you entertain those thoughts and those opportunities and that sin, you're going to be involved in it. And you're going to be caught up in it. Eventually be enslaved to it. I want to tell you of a story in the book of Judges, chapter 4. Maybe some of you know the story. The book of Judges, the people of Israel were in this vicious cycle. They would rebel against the Lord. They find themselves in bondage. They cry out to the Lord. The Lord would raise up a judge, a leader to deliver them. Well, in chapter 4, the people of Israel had been in bondage to the Canaanites for 20 years. For 20 years, all of those years, they had been bullied. They had been oppressed. They had been, you know, dominated, ruled over by the Canaanites. And the Canaanites were led by a man named Jabin. And Jabin had this general. He was a harsh general. His name was Sisera. And after 20 years of being controlled by Jabin and Sisera, the people cried out to the Lord. They cried out to the Lord. The Lord raised up a judge. He raised up a leader. It was actually, her name was Deborah. She had a general whose name was Barak. And the Lord says, that Deborah tell Barak that he gathers the troops. He's going to go to war against the Canaanites. He's going to battle against Sisera, the general, and his army. And Sisera, uh, the general of the Canaanites, had a huge advantage over Israel because Sisera had 900 chariots at his command. Israel didn't have anything like that. I mean, 900 chariots was like facing 900 tanks. And it looked like that... Israel, the children of Israel, were going to be slaughtered. They were going to be wiped out. They were greatly outnumbered. But God intervened as they cried out to the Lord. And he gave them victory. And the Canaanite army was defeated. And they began to run. They began to retreat. And in their defeat, Sisera, he managed to escape. He's running for his life. And what happens as you continue to read, again, Judges chapter 4, that he sees a tent in the distance. And in that tent that Sisera runs into is a woman that he actually knows. Her name is Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Heber means crossing over. The Kenites were part of the Canaanites. And Heber would leave the old Canaanite world, the old Canaanite life, and he would cross over to a new land. He traded his old world for a new life. You see, that's what you and I did. We left the old life. We left the old world. For a new life in Christ Jesus, we crossed over. And when you do that, when I do that, guess who's going to show up? It's going to be Sisera, isn't it? The thing, the guy who used to dominate you, the one who had authority over you, intimidate you, bully you, trying to rule over you. So here's Sisera. He's huffing. He's puffing. He comes into barreling into the tent of Jael, starts yelling at her, starts bullying her, being demanding. Give me a drink, he says. You see, that's what the old nature does. It's always give me a drink. Give me just one more drink, one more look, one more drink of alcohol, one more fix, one more carnal act, just one more. Just tonight, just this one time. So Sisera wanted to drink something, and it is JL that did something interesting, gave him some milk. What do you do when the old man, the old dictator, when he wants a drink, you give him milk? 
In other words, what I'm saying is the milk of the word of God. Peter would write in his epistle as newborn babes desiring the pure milk of the word that we would grow there by listen what Peter is saying is a newborn babe that they have a deep desire for the word of God that's the way you and I should be when those of us who have babies or you had babies or you've been around babies when they want a nurse when they want their milk they want it right now don't they and they'll start screaming and hollering that's what Peter is saying you should have a desire for the word of God in that way folks I cannot overstate how important it is for the priority of the Word of God in our lives, for the systematic teaching of the Word of God, because the benefit and blessing that it does in our hearts as we take it in and we grow and we mature and we grow in wisdom and we grow in truth. And even as Romans chapter 10 is going to declare to us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, the way to grow in faith is taking in the Word of God consistently and constantly and having a desire for it. The two things that I can give to you that's going to be tremendous blessing and benefit to you is God's love and God's truth, God's word. So please never say, oh, I don't really need Bible study. I don't need to read the Bible. I've been to Bible study before. We constantly need continually to be taken in the word of God, to be watered with the word of God. And Sisera needs to be given the milk of the word. And then Sisera makes another request. JL, what I want you to do is cover me up and I want you to lie for me. If anybody asks that I'm here, I'm not here. And you see, that's what the old sin nature says. The old man says to you and to me, hide your sin, cover me up. Don't let anyone know that I'm here. And I do not know why that people will think I'll be happy, I'll be fulfilled, I'll be satisfied in being involved in this sin, but then they have to cover it up. They have to hide it. If it's so good, then why do you have to do that? And to understand, don't be deceived that God sees it, even as we saw in Romans chapter 2. Everything's open before the Lord. So J.L. covers him up, Sisera, with a rug, And think about it. He's under the rug. He's under there. He's got to be hot. He's getting stuffy, you know. And and he's probably getting thirsty again. And J.L., what she does is she sneaks over to him with the tent stake. She has a hammer. She takes that stake, puts it right there where his head is, and takes the hammer and drives that stake through his skull and nails him to the floor, and he dies. Now, you might be thinking, okay, that's a nice story. What does that have to do with me this morning before Christmas? (laughs) What do you do when sin comes knocking on the door? When Sisera shows up wanting to be satisfied, being demanding, this is what you do. You take the hammer. Jeremiah says in chapter 23, verse 29, that God's word is like a hammer. You take the spike, you take the stake. Sisera is covered up. He is paralyzed. He's rendered inactive. You take the spike of Calvary and you, the hammer of God's word, and you nail him. You nail the old guy. Then you walk away free because the old man is dead. And I am not free because of possibility thinking or the best of you and the champion in you. 
Or somebody send me a clip of a guy standing in a huge stadium, you know, in a church service that's standing there saying, you need to say to yourself, I'm not that bad. I'm not that bad. The reason that we are free is because God became a man and he went freely and willingly and allowed them to take a spike and pierce his hands and feet to a cross. And he rose again and he's alive. And when I come to him in faith, I know this, that I identify with Christ and the old man has been crucified with Christ. And I now live in his newness of life. And I present myself as the instrument of righteousness. And I am free from sin. I've been freed from sin. So Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her as the Holy Spirit. She's going to bring forth a son. You shall call his name Yeshua, Jesus, the Lord thy salvation. And he's going to save his people from their sins. So Father, thank you. Thank you so much for this word that's given to us, these chapters that are so important to us, to understand it, to realize it, to apply it in our lives. And so, Father, I pray that we would, that we identify with Christ in the newness of life. We don't have to be enslaved to sin and bondage to sin. We have the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. But, Lord, we also know that that can't happen unless we first come to you. So I pray if there's anyone here in this place, in this sanctuary, or in the coffee shop, or listening online, or on the radio later, that you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, you haven't come in faith for salvation, that today is the day of salvation. Jesus is your salvation. There's none other. He alone died for your sins. He went and took your sins upon himself. And he rose from the grave and he conquered sin and death. You can't save yourself. You can't be like so many that are surveyed, think that heaven is for those who are good people. Jesus didn't come to save good people. He came to, to make alive dead people. And none of us are good is what's being declared, even as Paul's going to say, in our flesh is no good thing. But I'm thankful that Jesus came to provide forgiveness and salvation in relationship with you, Father. It only comes through Jesus, through faith. You come, you repent, the Bible says. You turn to Jesus and you surrender your life to him. You call upon him. He loves you. That's why he went and died for you, to give you a living hope. Will you do that right now? Today is the day of salvation. And you can receive the greatest gift, the free gift, greater than any gift you'll receive at Christmas. And that is Jesus, the free gift of salvation. Will you do that right now? You can pray right where you are. Jesus, I come to you and I ask you to forgive me of my sins. I believe you died on the cross for me and I thank you for that. Forgive me. I believe you're alive. You're speaking to my heart and I ask that you sit upon the throne of my heart in my life as my personal Lord and Savior. This is now my gospel. And I thank you for this new beginning, for this new hope, and this new life that I can walk with you and know you, serve you, Lord. Lord, teach me. Keep me close to you. And I thank you 
for your salvation in Jesus' name. And listen, if you prayed that prayer, if you're here in the coffee shop, we've got a prayer team up front. In just a minute, I'm going to ask that you come up and share with them that you've been saved, that you made that decision for him. Tell me at the door. Let us know so we can follow up and pray with you and encourage you. But Lord, I do pray for us this Christmas that we would understand that Jesus came to save his people from their sins. And not only from the penalty of sin, but the power of sin in our lives as we identify with you, Lord. Father, I pray that those who are going to be traveling, that you keep them safe, all of us, that we'd have a blessed time with family and friends. And Lord, that the Christmas story would never lose its impact on our hearts and lives. The incredible coming of your son who came to die for us and give us hope. So Lord, thank you for this morning. Bless everyone here. In Jesus' name.